You're listening to Conversations on Strategy. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today, I'm speaking with Drs. Christopher J. Bolin, Jared I. Harper, and Joel R. Hillison, authors of Diverging Interests, U.S. Strategy in the Middle East. We're revisiting this article, which was published in the winter 2020-21 issue of Parameters, in light of current events. Bolin is a professor emeritus at the U.S. Army War College. Harper is a professor of military studies at the U.S. Army War College, and Hillison is a professor of national security studies at the U.S. Army War College. All three collaborated as co-editors and contributors to the 2023 book, Sustaining America's Strategic Advantage, published by Prager Security International. Welcome to Conversations on Strategy. Well, thanks, Stephanie. We're glad to be here. Please give us a brief overview of your article. We wrote this article in the midst of the COVID pandemic. There are big shifts going on globally with the realization of this competition with China, a change in how international relations were playing out, specifically in the Middle East region, where a shift from historic power centers among Arab states, such as Egypt, Iraq, Syria, to Saudi Arabia and some non-Arab states, Israel, Iran, Turkey, that we focused on in our article. Three of these states the U.S. considers as allies, and while we share interests with them, we also saw that our interests were diverging in some key areas. So we still wanted to maintain stability in the region, degrade terrorist organizations, but it seemed like our allies were seeking more autonomy, pursuing their own interests, sometimes at the expense of us. And Iran obviously was not an ally, but they were increasingly becoming emboldened to push back against U.S. leadership in the region to confront the regional order that we'd helped underwrite for many years, especially with our significant military presence in the region. So we went on to explore each one of the different countries, starting with Iran, the probably the most problematic of the countries. We had withdrawn from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was an attempt to limit Iran's nuclear program with our European allies, Russia, China. Iran, in consequence, started re-engaging with their nuclear program, continued to build their ballistic missile capability, and they were continuing to support what we would call bad actors in the region, support for Hezbollah, support from the Houthi rebels in Yemen, Shia groups in Syria and Iraq, and they're also starting a rapprochement with some of the Arab countries in the region. For the longest time, we'd been the protector of Saudi Arabia. We'd been a big consumer of energy since the shale revolution. Now the U.S. and Saudi became energy competitors to some extent. They've always played a double game with their support for Wahhabism, and Chris can talk more about that later, while at the same time partnering with us to combat terrorism, especially groups like ISIS. And we also had a leadership transition within the kingdom from older leadership to Mohammed bin Salman, who in some ways was modernizing Saudi Arabia, but also had some troubling aspects to his behavior, including the killing of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey. We had had great hopes for Turkey at the turn of the century as a role model for what a secular, democratic, Islamic republic could look like. That kind of went by the wayside, especially after the coup attempt in 2016. President Erdogan became increasingly autocratic. He blamed the coup on his former political partner, Fethullah who actually lives in the Poconos here in Pennsylvania, as well as the United States. And many people in Turkey believed that was the case, that the U.S. was behind this. He was increasingly using Islamic rhetoric to support his policies. He had strong ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, which was problematic for us. There was increasing tension with the U.S. 
and Turkey over our support of the Kurds, the YPG in northern Syria, where they saw that as two sides to the same coin of the PKK terrorist group, and then Turkey's cooperation with Russia. They purchased the S-400 anti-aircraft system, which threatened our new programs such as the F-35, and that caused a lot of problems in our relations with Turkey. And finally, Israel. We've had historic strong support for Israel, but that relationship was also being complicated by expanded settlements, really no progress on the two-state solution. The regional threats seemed to be softening a little bit, except for Iran. Israel was laser-focused on Iran. They continued to target Iranian proxies in Lebanon and Syria. There was some concern that this might spill over and draw us into conflict. At the same time, Israel was also increasing cooperation with Russia. So our recommendation was to take a more nuanced hedging strategy in the region, rely less on our military footprint, but to focus on key areas like building partner capacity, eradicating ISIS, while at the same time deterring Iran, while attempting to re-engage on limitations on their nuclear program. We also wanted to facilitate the strengthening of ties between Israel and the Gulf cooperation countries and hopefully facilitate dialogue between Turkey and the Kurdish people so that we could move forward in our relations. What are the major developments impacting U.S. Middle East strategies since the article was published in early 2021? One of the keys was the Biden administration coming to power in January 2021. And Joel highlighted a lot of our key objectives, and I think Biden followed those in large measure. But I would boil them down to three priorities and objectives for the new Biden administration. One, it was to deprioritize the Middle East as a strategic priority so we could really enable and bolster and put meat on the bones of a strategic shift to Asia. The second was really to build on the Trump administration's success in carving out some real normalization agreements. In this case, the so-called Abraham Accords, they were between UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. In the last six months, you've seen the Biden administration in particular put a lot of domestic and diplomatic capital toward getting Saudi Arabia into those agreements too. And the third, I would say, is, and Joel alluded to this, was really trying to restore Iranian agreement to the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was the nuclear deal. When it was operating and in force, it really put a serious lid on Iran's nuclear activities, reduced their enriched uranium by 95%, decreased their number of centrifuges spinning by two-thirds, and really pushed out what we call the breakout period, that time that Iran would need to enrich enough uranium for a single nuclear weapon. From what it was, was like two to three months at the time, a 2015 agreement and push that back out to 12 months, which is really an important buffer. I think it's fair to say each of those objectives right now is pretty much at risk in the region. Internationally, I think one of the most significant developments impacting the region really was Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that was in February 2022. And the U.S. has just launched a very aggressive global diplomatic campaign to bring people to our side and to oppose the Russian invasion and aggression in Ukraine. That's met with pretty modest success in the region. We've had even very traditional allies, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Egypt, actually trying to push back and really adopt hedging strategies of their own, not to really alienate themselves too far from Russia. In our region that's got a lot of bad news, I'll start out with a positive. And there were important signs of easing of regional 
tensions. That was prompted in no small measure by a perception in the region that's widespread that the U.S. was disengaging. So leaders really were taking the responsibility and ownership for some of these problems on their own shoulders, which is great. That's kind of the U.S. strategic push for burden sharing. So that was good news, but we saw the Saudi, UAE, and Egypt actually end their three-year-old blockade of Qatar. That allowed the GCC Gulf Cooperation Council at least an opportunity to restore itself as a bulwark against Iranian expansion in the region. UAE and Saudi Arabia on their own actually pursued a rapprochement with Iran just to ease the prospect of a direct confrontation with Iran. And that culminated with a Chinese brokered deal in March of this year between Saudi Arabia and Iran to restore their own diplomatic relations. And interestingly enough, a lot of these trends actually continue. Now, on the negative front, it's worth reminding folks that with the exception of perhaps the rich oil exporting countries of the Gulf, the region really suffers from stalemated civil wars yet in Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and Libya. All the domestic, political, and economic pressures that led to the Arab uprisings in 2011 still exist out there, and leaders are feeling those pressures. And I think the combination of these two really keep, in particular, Arab leaders focused on their own domestic security and really trying to tamp down on any prospect that any pro-Palestinian sentiment, for example, might actually seek to undermine their own legitimacy in their own country. So that's going to keep Arab leaders really tied down. So those, I think, are the major developments from the U.S. international and regional perspective since we published our article. If I could just add, I think one thing that was a positive element as well was the momentum stemming from the Abraham Accords, where you had Israel coming closer to a number of Arab states. And leading up to the Hamas attacks on October 7th, they were even very close, apparently, to some kind of negotiated agreement with Saudi Arabia. This is all gone away now. Their relationship has suffered tremendously. It's going to take a lot of work to get back to the situation that existed at the end of July, if that's even possible. Yeah, and let me piggyback on what Jared said. There was also a rapprochement with Turkey between Turkey and Egypt and Saudi Arabia to try and paper over some of the difficulties they've had in the past, especially over Erdogan's support of the Muslim Brotherhood. With the war in Russia, we started seeing this foreign policy effort by Turkey to be kind of a balanced relationship with NATO, the U.S., and with Russia. So one of their big successes was they were able to negotiate this grain deal for the export of grain from Ukrainian ports that they brokered between Russia and Ukraine. There was also the re-election of President Erdogan in May of 2023, which gave him license to focus more on broader issues. He brought in a more legitimate and respected economic team, and also to focus on what he called the century of Turkey. October was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Turkish Republic. This was Erdogan's chance to say, hey, Turkey is a regional power. We're going to revert to our historic role to being a peacemaker, promoting everybody's security and prosperity in the region. And so these were things that happened since the article was published. The focus of discussions now centers around the October 7th, 2023 Hamas terrorist attack and Israel's reaction. How is the Israeli response to the Hamas attacks likely to impact or complicate U.S. policy options and regional strategy going forward? 
Here at the Army War College, we've put a lot of effort into helping students think through the great importance that both the global and domestic environments play in shaping a country's policy and resolving strategy. So this combination of the global and domestic environment is clearly driving the strategies of both the United States and Israel in this crisis. Israel suffered what in the U.S. we probably best describe as a 9-11 level shock to their domestic psyche with the horrific level of violence that was directed purely at unarmed civilians or mostly at unarmed civilians. The Israeli government is being driven by a domestic need for decisive action against Hamas, and this far outweighs the short-term impacts to their relations with neighboring Arab countries. For the U.S., there's a great deal of domestic support for Israel, in particularly because of the nature of the Hamas attacks. But at the same time, there's concern with Israel's efforts in regards to the West Bank with their settlers. And then finally, we are heavily involved with both Israel as well as the Arab countries. It puts the U.S. in a challenging situation. We're forced to support Israel in dealing with Hamas, but very careful to try to mitigate these impacts. So going forward, in particular, you can see there's a lot of deterrence making sure that this doesn't expand into a regional war with Iranian proxies operating out of Lebanon and Syria that could tremendously destabilize the entire region. Afterwards, the U.S. is going to have to negotiate some sort of peace agreement or trying to get the countries to work together and then rebuild towards the status quo that existed previously, which was where all these countries were moving closer together in a generally anti-Iran sort of stance. But that's going to take a great deal of effort because Israel and the countries around, which have Palestinian populations and a great deal of sympathy for the population in Gaza, it will take a while to repair those relations. You know, some of that sympathy is really at the public level. The people are really sympathetic. Some of the leaders in the region are not as sympathetic, especially with organizations like Hamas. But they're being forced by public outcry to publicly stand in support of the Palestinian people. I think the UAE was the only country, and Chris might correct me, that actually condemned the atrocities that Hamas committed on October 7th. Even Erdogan, our NATO ally, publicly supported Hamas and failed to criticize those attacks on October 7th. So they have some difficult domestic political issues that they have to deal with while at the same time trying to keep tensions cooled. No, exactly. And that's why you've seen the U.S. putting a full court press, both with the Israelis, but also our, you know, Arab partners as well. Both diplomatically, you've had Secretary Blinken out there, Secretary of State. You've also had the Defense Secretary out there and the president himself, of course, making a stop in Israel as well. So that's why it's so critical. It is a delicate balancing act. Just to put a fine point on one, just to be illustrative, is the fact that Israel's goal of destroying Hamas in terms of U.S. deterrence and preventing this from spreading is actually directly at odds with what a lot of observers think is Hezbollah's red line for opening a front in northern Israel. You know, the closer Israel gets to achieving that, very reasonable, understandable, if maybe not even attainable objective, the closer we get to a larger regional outbreak. In light of recent developments, what specific recommendations do you have for U.S. policymakers? Yeah, maybe I'll kick off on this and go back to our original premise in the article. I think our original approach still holds this hedging strategy and taking a more pragmatic and transactional approach, especially with Turkey, but also our other allies, Israel and Saudi. You know, the Iran piece is a little trickier, so I'll let Chris talk about that. But we certainly want to emphasize the diplomatic approach. As Chris mentioned, a lot of activity by Secretary Blinken with our Secretary of Defense. We also need to use more of the economic lever. By having that presence in the region, maybe not heavy military, but heavy economic and diplomatic, we can get in front of some of the emerging issues, not just this current crisis, 
it helped our decision makers inform the policies that they come up with and also demonstrate our influence with our allies and partners. And I think we're doing a fairly good job with that. You know, we can see some inklings of Egypt, UAE, for example, agreeing to provide some field hospital support to Palestinians immediately outside of Gaza. France is offering a surgical hospital. So some of that stuff is the U.S. exerting its influence behind the scenes, and I think that's important. I think it's still important to minimize our emphasis on the military. You know, just as we're doing, you know, having a naval air presence to deter aggression from Iran, but more of a information-focused approach, getting our message out there that Hamas is not a legitimate spokesperson. They violated the laws of war. At the same time, there are some legitimate concerns that Palestinians have. And so it's going to be hard, but I think we have to approach this as a dual-track policy where we provide diplomatic military support to Israel, humanitarian support to the people of Palestine, especially in Gaza, but start working towards that end game. You know, we've had this two-state solution as our policy for a long time. We need to start moving the ball forward on that. And if I can, I give a plug to one of our students, Raphael Cohen, who's an analyst for RAND, had a nice piece in the Los Angeles Times recently about the short-sightedness of Israel's mowing the grass strategy. We need to get beyond that, and we need to start moving forward. But it's got to be a heavy diplomatic economic effort, building on those relationships we've built over the past 50 years. I definitely agree. But one of the things in the short term, in spite of this, we're all in agreement about this long-term hedging sort of strategy. But in the short term, we do need to continue with this surge of military power into the region for a deterrence and a signaling effort, not hopefully to become involved, but to message and keep the situation as stable as possible in terms of we don't want this to expand. So that's why you've seen the naval, air, air defense assets coming into the region. Those need to be there temporarily. We need to keep the situation stable, hopefully so we can empower these diplomatic initiatives, allow the information to take effect, and then to move into the kind of post-conflict efforts, which are critically important, which Joel just talked about. In the long term, we then need to move back to our other commitments. What we talked about in the article, the de-emphasizing of the Middle East from a U.S. military commitment standpoint, we think needs to continue. We've got commitments in Europe in support of ongoing operations in Ukraine and preventing further expansion of that conflict. And then increasingly in the Pacific with an aggressive China, which is more and more becoming a focus of U.S. efforts. Those are the long-term areas where we need our military forces, even though we've had to surge in the short term. And I, I would just add, I mean, there are pressures to actually, despite our recommendation, there are pressures to actually expand U.S. commitments to the region too. And in particular, I'd highlight the Saudi demand when we were talking about the Saudi normalization. They were looking for some concessions from the United States. And really, that normalization agreement is as much with the United States and Saudi Arabia as it is with Israel. And in particular, Saudi leaders wanted a solid U.S. defense commitment, and they wanted a pledge to help them advance their civil nuclear programs. So there are pressures to actually get involved even deeper. And that's a good point. It probably leads into your final point. We have to be careful with the balance there that we don't just leave the area vacuum. China had been making a great deal of movement into the region. The U.S. had surged back in there with helping to broker what was moving towards the Israeli-Saudi agreement. We need to make sure that our commitments are there, that we're working with our partners, but clearly that they see us in support of them. How can the United States balance its interests in the region with the interests of other actors, such as Russia and China? I'll focus just on the immediate region, and Israel's neighbors in particular are all got to be playing important roles. 
and they're all different, unique challenges for the United States. For instance, Egypt, of course, as we've seen with the debate of trying to get the Rafah crossing open from Gaza, that is the only port of entrance or exit for Gaza. So the U.S. is going to be working closely with Egypt to open that border to more and more humanitarian aid. At the same time, there's a push from at least some elements in the Israeli political establishment for Egypt to open up to be at least a temporary refuge for Gazan refugees. And up to that's, you know, a million plus Gazan refugees. And that for Egypt is a red line. They're not going to allow that for their own reasons of security and perception of being viewed as kind of enabling yet another displacement of Palestinians out of Palestine. So that's a red line for Egypt, and the U.S. is right in the thick of negotiating that with Egypt. So that's just one case in point. Jordan is actually in a similar fragile position. They definitely do not want to allow any Gazans or Palestinians going into Jordan. Jordan's already about 70% Palestinian, so there's a demographic balance there that is essentially an existential threat to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. So that's a red line for Jordan, and Jordan is obviously critical to security cooperation with Israel too. And the fear is that the West Bank could explode, and Jordan's going to be key to controlling the inflows in and out over the Jordan River with the West Bank. So just an example of the tight ropes that U.S. diplomats and military officials are going to be walking. And just to build off what I was discussing in regards to China, China is very interested in the region. They've stayed largely out of it, so I don't think that's necessarily helped them. The U.S. is involved with Israel, however, which has got to rebuild its relationship. The key moving forward is that we continue to support the abilities of the countries in the region to maintain their own security, work diplomatically to bring them together, in particular to reinforce their security concerns in regards to Iran, and not leave a vacuum. Not leaving a vacuum doesn't mean surging U.S. forces. It means working with our partners, but we need to make sure that they understand that we are in support of them so that a vacuum isn't created that China could move in. To get back to Stephanie's question about Russia, I think Russia wants to, in some ways, revert to its Cold War role, being a supporter of the Arabs as they were in the 67 and 73 wars, but they don't want to completely break ties with Israel because, of course, they have to deconflict their activities in Syria, especially. They are energy producers, so they still want to work closely with OPEC and Saudi Arabia in controlling the energy flows because they rely on that for revenues. But I think they see this conflict as a boon for them. It distracts people from the war in Ukraine, not only their physical attention, but also the military and economic support from the West. Now, the United States is diverting military and economic aid to Israel, and it, it may complicate getting aid also to Ukraine. It also gives Russia an opportunity to show themselves as friends of the global south, friends of the Middle East. They blame this on the United States, this conflict. They've hosted Hamas leaders in Moscow, so they've clearly leaned in towards Hamas and against the United States, in fact, blaming us for this entire conflict. So Russia is trying to take advantage of the situation in a way that boosts their status in the region. Do you have any concluding thoughts you'd like to share? What we're dealing with now at the time of taping this podcast, it's obviously a tremendously volatile and fluid situation. So it remains to be seen what happens. Hopefully, if the situation can be contained just to Gaza, then we can move forward to some sort of agreement. But on the edge of this whole conflict, we've seen this concern with Iran's proxy network and the great power that they have, a much more serious missile threat. 
than what's been coming to Israel, than that's what's been coming out of Gaza. So that will continue to be on the horizon, and hopefully deterring any potential conflict and allowing the countries of the region to deter it will be important moving forward. I think one of the key challenges for the United States is the prospect that the gulf between U.S. advice to Israel and what happens on the ground in Gaza is going to get increasingly wide. I mean, one of the things we really teach about strategy here at the War College is, look, you need to define an end state. You need to know where you want to go in order to tailor that military campaign and a supportive political and economic campaign to get to that objective. And right now, there are huge uncertainties. Israel is saying they want to destroy Hamas. Big questions about whether that's even attainable. Hamas is much more than a terrorist organization. It's also a political organization. It's a social welfare network as well. It's an ideology of kind of resistance to Israeli occupation. So that's going to be increasingly difficult in getting Israel to define their clear end state and think through the repercussions is going to be hard. Right now, the latest is Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think today, said that they would actually control the Gaza Strip for the indefinite future going forward. So does that mean permanent occupation, semi-permanent occupation for how long? What would come in after an Israeli occupation? Who were the international and regional partners that would be willing? to dip their toe into that quagmire. All big questions going forward, but they really need to be thought about and debated now. I have nothing to add. I think I agree with what Chris and Jared said. It's a difficult time for the United States. There are a lot of domestic issues that should caution us about being too ambitious, especially with the commitment of additional military resources. We've got a lot of things going on, continued commitment to Ukraine, our focus on the Indo-Pacific. We really have to leverage those diplomatic, informational, economic tools that can help us retain our influence in the region. Listeners, you can read the Genesis article at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for volume 50, issue four. Joel, Chris, Jared, thank you for making time to speak with me today. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this episode of Conversations on Strategy and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 